I dreamed of traveling the long road, singing my songs to that distant stranger. Yes, I know it's sad for you, but it's something I got to do. And I will be coming home, back to the mountains, back to being free from all there is to be. Coming home to live and the life I once knew. Hello, everyone. And welcome to Bedtime Bible Boys with Brock, Trey, and Theron TJ. Thanks Thanks for for listening. We love you, Mom. And you too, Gail. Tonight we are going to continue in Nehemiah chapter 2. In chapter 1, we received a little bit of history. The different exile groups returning to Jerusalem, the timeline of that. And what was going on when the final group of exiles returned under the leadership of Nehemiah. They were repenting. The people of Israel were repenting. Well, they started repenting because they were living sinfully. And Nehemiah, through his prayer, uh, was going to encourage the nation to confess and repent. Right? We talked a little bit how the old law offered mercy at best. You were going to have to just hope for God's mercy because you were not going to keep the law. Right? But that the new covenant offers something better which is eternal love and acceptance through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Mm Mm-hmm. So with that, we continue on into chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, someday I'm going to have to figure out what all these months are, in the 20th year of King Arctaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king, whose eye... Nehemiah. Nehemiah. That's right. He's the author. I think it's first person point of view. Correct. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. Well, he's a fairly discerning king. Trey's good at that. Trey can usually feel when something is off. And I was very much afraid... But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. Smart. Praise first. And I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. 
that we need to do it'd be fun to do like a history lesson on that trip from Babylon to Jerusalem because every single time it seems like in these books they talk about needing safety needing safety right rather it be through God or through the king I mean there very much be something dangerous along the way right and in verse 8 and may I have a letter to Asaph keeper of the king's forest so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy and because the gracious hand of my God was upon me the king granted my requests so I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters the king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me, except the one I was riding on. A horse. I guess that's right, yes. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate. Dung gate. <laughs> dung. <laughs> dung gate. Seriously. <laughs> Examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. And in verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked? Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem, or any claim or historic right to it. And that is the conclusion of chapter 2. That was fast. It was fast. This last verse, though, or these last couple verses, they really give us some good things to talk about. Nehemiah has this plan, and it's from God, and he knows that God's going to bless it. And so he makes a decision to rally up the leadership that's in Israel and to start the action of rebuilding the wall. How do the surrounding people respond? Mocking. 
That's right, they mock him, right? This is a common tactic that I believe it's used by the devil. I, I just he, I just think that there's emptiness in people's heart, and so they can't help but be negative about things that you want to do, right? So if you have something in life that you're going after, and somebody's even a little bit jealous, like they're gonna tell you you can't do it or you won't be able to. It really takes a friend and someone who loves you and cares about you to like to encourage you, right? And that doesn't mean that they tell you lies. Like, for example, if there's, you know, a, a move that you want to get in gymnastics and you can't do it, that doesn't mean telling you like, no, you're able to do that right now. It's like, no, you're not. But if you work hard, one day you will. And that's really the message that these people should get is if you work hard, and you stay committed, you will rebuild this wall. But instead, it's like the enemy's immediately trying to put something in their mind. And those are kind of simple examples, but maybe even a better one is, and this one's especially, if it's really popular to do a bad thing, like let's say when you grow up, all the kids want to go out drinking at night, drinking alcohol when you're not supposed to, you're under 21, right? Or let's say all of them are going to go, all your friends are going to go just do something bad, like steal something from a store or something. I don't know. And they're, call it a game. Yeah. Or like they're going to go spray paint somebody's house, you know, like these are bad things, right? These are all bad things. And you say, I'm not going to do that. That's not the right thing to do. I'm not going with you. Do you think that they're going to support you and encourage you and say, man, I totally respect your decision not to partake in this with us and I understand why you're making it? Or do you think they're going to laugh at you? They're going to laugh and make fun of. That's right. So we need to make sure that our identity, as I'm sure Nehemiah did, we need to make sure that our identity is in a position where the foundation of it is based on what our Father says about us, right? What does God say about us? And what does God say about the purposes that he's given us, right? That's our identity. So that way, when somebody turns around and makes fun of us, we're not making up our identity on the fly based on what others are saying about us. We already have an identity. Nothing you can say about me is going to change that or impact it. So when you say, oh, you chicken, why don't you go home and be with your mommy? It's like, fine, I will be, you know? They make fun of you because... You're a nice person. They make fun of you because you have self-control. They make fun of you because maybe you still love your mom and dad. You know what? Those are all godly things. And if somebody can't get behind that, then they've got identity issues, not you. It's like last year. He laughed at me because I wrote down on a sheet of paper that you guys still, like, you guys spend time with us at night putting us to bed. There's nothing wrong with that. No. We talked about that, and... The sad part is, is that the root of that is probably jealousy. That somebody probably wishes that their parents would read to them at night and mentor them and talk with them and pray with them and lay with them, right? There's probably an emptiness there. Now, I don't say that because it's like, ha ha, so he really jokes on him. I say it like, no, remember, it's like, let's pray for him because he obviously is hurting in this area of his life. And the only thing he can think to do right now is try and hurt people who feel good in that area of their life. 
your identity is in what God says about you. And what God has said about you is, through Jesus Christ, you're perfect to me. You lack nothing for me. I have nothing displeasing or bad to say about you. Well, if that's how the creator of the universe and my God feel about me, then I guess how everybody else feels about me really doesn't matter that much. They're going to come and go, but he's going to be forever. Good? Mm-hmm. All right. I love you, boys. Love you, too. You guys are good kids. Mm-hmm.